evening and welcome to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking weekly show covering legal issues affecting everyday people. We know that there are many things you could be doing with your time, and we appreciate your decision to share this time with us. I'm Irving Jordan. And I'm April Dawson. We're law professors at North Carolina Central University School of Law, and we're your co-hosts. The Legal Eagle Review is sponsored by the NCCU School of Law and the Virtual Justice Project. We thank you for joining us this evening. In every country, housing is a basic and fundamental need. Satisfying this need has posed problems around the globe And here in the United States, that need has always transformed itself into an out of sight, out of mind crisis. That crisis was magnified when the COVID-19 pandemic struck and its presence could no longer be denied or ignored. In fact, we are dealing with two separate crises here, but they are related in many ways. One, deals with renters, the other deals with home ownership. In March 2020, the quickly spreading coronavirus resulted in a shutdown of every facet of life in the United States and created widespread panic and devastation in the lives of everyone. As it is in every crisis, African-Americans, people of color, and the poor were among the hardest hit victims. The widespread loss of jobs, which resulted in the destruction of the economic safety net for those who had one, imposed a tremendous and visible punishment on these communities from which most have not been able to recover. In an attempt to cushion the out of control housing crisis, Congress allocated nearly $47 billion in COVID-19 rental assistance and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, issued a nationwide ban on tenant evictions, which was later determined to be illegal by the US Supreme Court. Funds have been allocated to states and local governments but they have not been accessed by those renters who are in need of this assistance. The most recent eviction ban expired on July 31st and landlords threatened to begin the eviction process, which would have placed millions of renters in danger of being removed from their residences. At the same time, the cost of housing, rental and ownership has increased by an estimated 20% and has placed home ownership out of reach for millions of low and middle income individuals, even though mortgage rates have reached an all time low and economic benefit and advantage for those who are financially able to purchase a home. In response to demonstrations and outrage from political leaders, housing and civil rights activists and advocates, the CDC has now issued another emergency decree to halt the evictions of rental tenants across the United States, which is probably illegal. But this act will probably, will 
but this act will provide temporary relief for many tenants who are in peril. The heart of this overwhelming housing crisis will remain as a challenge which continues to seek a solution. Tonight, we will explore this latest crisis in an attempt to understand why we are where we are, what is the scope of the problem and what are the possible solutions. Joining us to discuss this topic are Yolanda Winstead, the president and CEO of DHIC, and Jesse McCoy, the James Scott Farron Lecturing Fellow and the Supervising Attorney for the Civil Justice Clinic at Duke University Law School. We want to thank both of you for agreeing to take time out of your busy schedule to join with us in our Zoom studio for this discussion. Thank you for having us. All right. Well, let's start this, this conversation. Um, for our audience, for our audience, so that they can understand who you are, what you are doing, and the uh, level of your expertise. Can you kind of uh, explain exactly what it is that your organization uh, do with respect to housing in our uh, communities? Let's start with uh, Ms. Winstead. Uh, thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, so I am president and CEO of DHIC, and DHIC is a nonprofit um, developer of affordable housing. Um, we were established back in 1974. Um, we currently have four lines of business, which one is the real estate development aspect. Um, then we have an asset management team. We have resident services and a home ownership center. Um, so those four lines of business work collaboratively. We have since 1974 developed almost 3,000 units of affordable rental housing and constructed and developed about 350 units of home, single family home ownership um, in Wake County and surrounding communities. Um, we've actually worked in about eight counties in our state. Um, the total development cost is around 60, 365 million of private and sector, private and public sector dollars um, for those developments. So we currently serve just over 4,100 residents, which is a mix of individuals, singles, um, seniors, and then folks with supportive housing needs in a couple of our properties as well. Um, we don't provide direct services, but we work with uh, other groups in our community to bring services to the residents in our communities. And um, of those units, those are spread across about 45 properties. And so our asset management team is responsible for managing the fiscal health and communicating and liaising with our third party property management uh, to make sure we're maintaining the highest quality of those, those units and preserving the useful life of those units so that we're providing quality housing to our, to our residents. And then on our homeownership center side, we're providing homeownership education, pre and post purchase counseling and foreclosure prevention services to folks throughout our community, helping them access um, down payment assistance that's available for first time home buyers in our community. Let me just uh, uh, pose a quick question to you. Uh, when you say affordable housing, could you kind of just describe uh, what that is since that's a foreign concept to so many people? 
Sure. Um, so usually when we say affordable housing, the first question we get is affordable to who? So when we say affordable housing in our world, um, we're primarily developing rental housing under the low-income housing tax credit program. And under that program, we're serving folks who are earning 60% of our area median income or less. Um, when you say a unit's affordable, whether it be rental or home ownership, traditionally that under HUD's definition of affordable, then the household's not paying more than 30% of their income um, for housing and utilities uh, all combined. Um, so you could, you know, make the argument that, you know, affordability issues fan, you know, across the spectrum of income levels. But we're primarily talking about folks earning 60% or less of our area median income. And so if you're talking about Wake County, for a household of four, that's going to be a family that's earning no more than about $57,420 a year. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Professor McCoy. Yes, um, I'm Jesse McCoy. I am a clinical professor of law at Duke University, and I supervise the Duke Civil Justice Clinic. Uh, the purpose of the clinic is to provide law school students with the experience of civil litigation. Uh, and what we do is primarily focus on housing. When I say housing, I mean primarily uh, landlord-tenant law, eviction defense, and habitability concerns. Um, through this position, I've also had the opportunity to be on a number of national, state, and local panels uh, addressing kind of the crisis as it is. Uh, and we are partnered with Legal Aid of North Carolina and the Durham County Department of Social Services for what's known as Durham's Eviction Diversion Program. Uh, this program has been operational since 2017. And one of the big things about the program is that uh, it helped us to kind of understand what evictions look like and who evictions are impacting long before the onset of COVID, which has certainly exacerbated all of the pre-level eviction things that we had expected. Um, we also now are kind of in the mix with trying to get people to understand what their rights are with all of the shifting changes in the various moratoria that have come through over the past year. Uh -huh. Well, let me just uh, raise with you, and I'm gonna go back to this Winstead uh, uh, as well. Uh, can you kind of uh, just describe the scope of the problem as it relates to uh, uh, tenants who are renting property and the kinds of uh, issues that they have encountered in the past? And of course, that's been kind of exacerbated uh, now uh, with, this, uh, with this pandemic. So can you kind of uh, give us a, a bird's eye view of exactly uh, what that problem is? Absolutely. So one of the things that's important to note is that evictions were already at a crisis level in Durham County long before COVID. And unfortunately, those evictions tend to pair up with uh, marginalized communities being kind of at the forefront. Uh, what we have noticed is that in communities like Durham, we have increasing housing supply, but that housing supply is not designed for people who are low to moderate income. So you can find luxury apartments on almost every corner downtown. Uh, but the people who are actually from here, live here, work here, and operate here can't afford those luxury apartments. Um, and as a result, people were being evicted because other landlords were recognizing that there was an opportunity for economic growth in catering to that largely uh, luxurious demographic. Uh, 
in that time, what we also have seen is the onset of COVID kind of impacted not just the lowest income communities, but even some of our middle class communities, because the shutdown impacted everyone. Uh, and so because the shutdown impacted everyone, people who traditionally would not have needed rental assistance funds or any kind of support now were in desperate need of it in order to maintain their tenancies. Uh, likewise, we also see uh, landlords who are not by any means monolithic. We have some landlords who are viewing this merely as a budgetary consideration to say, we want to maximize the amount of money we make for the units that we rent. And we're unable to do that because of the moratorium. You've got some landlords who have been vested in the community for decades, and they're trying to see people housed but can't afford to continue operations uh, because they're not able to collect rent in the way that they would like. And the main thing that I would want uh, listeners to understand is that this issue isn't supposed to be a landlord versus tenant issue. Uh, this is an issue of government failure to act. And the government's failure to act has created a situation that appears facially adversarial on both sides. Okay. And uh, Mr. Winsett, can you kind of talk about the, the housing ownership end of it and how that uh, crisis has uh, developed and uh, it presently uh, manifests itself? So from a homeownership perspective, obviously, uh, you know, people of color and, and low income uh, folks have always lagged behind. There's a gap in the homeownership um, statistics for, you know, uh, minorities versus um, white households. And what we're finding in our current climate has been that, as you mentioned earlier, while, you know, we've, we've been in a period where um, interest rates have been historically low. However, um, we're in a market where you know, have lots of people moving here, um, more money's coming into the market. There's um, a mismatch between you know, the number of units that are available and those in, at the price point that can serve low income and low to moderate income households. And so we've got a shortage of supply and then more demand for those units. But what we're finding is because of wages and people's salaries and getting folks to be mortgage ready is that taking advantage of programs that are in place, such as the down payment assistance program, either through you know, the city of Raleigh or funds available over in Durham County or even through the state housing finance agency, there's now this bias against purchasers who are using those dollars because of the competition for, for the units. And so a seller, it's a seller's market. The sellers are, you know, putting their house on sale and they got, you know, there's a bidding war for their home. They're going to want to pursue and the realtor, a lot of the realtors, not all, but a lot are really, you know, encouraging their sellers to not take the time to work with a buyer who has the additional down payment assistance program that comes with their purchase offer because of the length of time it might take to close. And so we have, we have a two-pronged issue is that there's now kind of this bias or even I to go as far as to say maybe discrimination to a certain degree against folks that need down payment assistance and using that tool to get into homes. And then there's also the fact that the homes that are being built are now above the price point that you can you know, get a first time a special first time mortgage for because of the cost of the house. Um, and so we've, we've got this gap that's always been there because of historic redlining and other things that have gone on in, in the past. And, and now when we're in this time where you should be able to take advantage of the fact that interest rates are really low, there's certainly uh, an issue addressing or even tapping into that supply. 
Yeah, Attorney McCoy, you mentioned that this the issue that we're confronted with shouldn't necessarily be viewed as landlord versus tenant, and that the, the problem here is that the government failed to act. Can you expand upon that a little bit? What, what would we have hoped the government um, would have done, and what can the government do now to address this issue when it comes to renters? So, exactly. So the first step here is that we knew that COVID-19 was a highly transferable disease. And when COVID-19 began to spread, we knew that it was going to be widespread shutdown. There was a lack of government action to uh, stop the spread, but now we're in the midst of it. So we have to deal with the fallout. Uh, what we have seen is a number of moratoria that have been extended roughly from the end of February last year on up and through the newest one that came out yesterday that extends it through October the 3rd. Uh, but the problem with the moratorium is that it does nothing to offset the accumulated rental balances and late fees that are going to be associated with the rent. So even though people may be in a position to be able to stay in their places temporarily, they're still going to become a day of reckoning where those bills are going to be due. What we needed to see and what we didn't see roughly until January of this year was rent supplementation for people who were unable to work or who needed the assistance. And so now, as of January, we've got this $47 billion that's out, but only about $3 billion of that has actually gotten into the hands of landlords and tenants. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Um, some of it is the Department of Treasury trying to set up the guidelines and establish what paperwork is going to be required in order to prove that people have these funds. So because that is uh, these, these hurdles have, have uh, been imposed, it has prevented people's access of the money and prevented their ability to pay the landlord. All right, this is the uh, Legal Legal Review. And uh, we're talking about the uh, housing crisis. Uh, that exists uh, within the United States and more particularly in uh, North Carolina. Our guests uh, tonight are uh, Yolanda Winstead, who is the president and uh, CEO of uh, DHIC, and uh, Professor Jesse McCoy, who is the uh, supervising attorney of the uh, Civil Justice Clinic at Duke University School of Law. We're going to take a quick break right now. I want you to uh, stay with us as we uh, continue this uh, discussion, and we'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Hannah Gaines, and I'm a current senior at North Carolina Central University, and this is your Community Event Spotlight. The event that we are highlighting is the Black Farmers Market. This event is going on now and doesn't end until December 12th. It's from 1.30 p.m. to 4.30 p.m. at the Golden Belt. This is a great opportunity to not only get local products, but also an amazing way to support Black-owned businesses. You can learn more about this event by visiting www.durhamcommunityengagement.org events. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. 
thank you so very much for staying with us uh, this evening for this very uh, important uh, discussion dealing with the uh, housing crisis. Uh, many of you have seen news reports uh, about it. You've read about it in the newspaper, at least those of you who still get the uh, newspaper. And you've seen it, obviously, on, uh, on television. And we have two uh, experts uh, in, this, uh, in this area. Uh, Yolanda Winstead, who is the president and CEO of uh, DHIC, and uh, Professor Jesse McCoy, who is the uh, supervising attorney for the Civil Justice Clinic at Duke University uh, School of Law. Let me just start back with uh, Ms. Winstead to, you know, you, you're dealing with both rentals and home uh, ownership, and you're kind of focused here in uh, the Raleigh-Durham uh, area. Uh, what do the numbers uh, look like? Who is uh, impacted uh, by this uh, issue in, uh, in real life? Uh, when we get past all of the monetary pieces, you know, what is a, a description of those people who are directly impacted? Oh, sure, that's a good that's a good question. And, and just looking at you know our own senses of who who we're serving, I mean we're serving um, you know a fair part of our portfolio. We're serving seniors, fifty five and older. Um, we're serving uh, families, you know, a lot of single parent households with children, young children. Uh, we're serving uh, folks who work in our school systems, who work in retail, work in our restaurants. Um, we're serving you know folks who work as teachers assistants. Um, we're serving, you know, people that are, you know, doing the housekeeping work in their hospitals. So we're, you know, we're serving, you know, the working folks who keep our economy and all of our businesses and our organizations running. Um, and those are the folks who are really, you know, directly impacted. Um, you know, seniors are on a fixed income. Uh, so, you know, they're not going to be able to, you know, obviously, you know, an economic boom's not going to increase their wages or their their Social Security or their retirement benefits that they're receiving. And then the low wage workers that we're serving um, are really have been strapped with if you're working a minimum wage job and a good good. Um, document I would point people to, um, the, North, the National um, Housing Coalition puts out an out of reach report annually. They've been publishing it since 1989, which basically talks about and, and lays out on an annual basis, the gap in the minimum wage or the housing, what they refer to as a housing wage, what a person needs to make to afford the fair market rent you know, in the community that they live in, the difference in that and what the, and, and what they actually make. And so, you know, minimum federal minimum wage is still seven and a quarter. Um, in our own state, if you would look at their report that just came out for 2021, you need to make $18 an hour, $18 and 46 cents an hour is this is the average state housing wage that, that a household needs to be able to earn to afford, you know, a typical two bedroom unit at, at fair market. Well, if most, you know, of the renters are earning seven and a quarter an hour, then there's a huge gap in what, you know, they earn and what they can, can afford in the way of housing. So we've had this problem long before the pandemic where, and then on top of that, we've got a shortage of affordable housing units. Um, also, their report pointed out that, you know, there are only 37 affordable um, units of rental units available for one, every 100 renters that are um, considered extremely low income, extremely low incomes earning 30% or less of our area meeting inc income. So we're not building affordable units fast enough and, and the wage that people are earning to afford rents 
it's not keeping up with the cost of housing. So those two things have been working against us uh, for a number of years. And so that's why this has been going on kind of, under, I won't say under the radar, those of us who work in this arena have been well aware of this issue for, for many years and, and working to try to solve it. Um, and so um, this isn't new, like you said, and it, it continues to be a problem and the pandemic and the economic shutdown, you know, just exacerbated all of that. So Ms. Winstead, what do folks who are not earning a living wage or a, a sufficient housing uh, wage, what are they doing? How, how is it that they are being housed in, in a safe, um, nurturing environment? Well, obviously, you know, we have an increasing homeless population. That's one, you know, fallout from that. And then we have people who are paying, you know, well above 30% of their income for housing. So, you know, you have families paying as up, upward of 50, 60% of their income for housing. Um, you know, folks are having to, um, you know, double up and to afford to afford units. Um, all sometimes they're paying, you know, well, you know, significantly more of their income for housing, and it's not necessarily a safe environment. Um, and all of this prevents people from, because you don't have stable, sustainable housing, you know, it prevents you from making progress in other aspects of your life. Children that are living, you know, in tenable housing situations are obviously aren't going to do well in school because they're worried about where they're going to rest their head at night or where their family's going to sleep. Um, so it's, um, it's, a it's a tough issue for us to, to, to work with and, and work on. And so um, their families, you, you'll see the increase, you know, the whole reason we're so concerned about the eviction moratorium ending is because all of these families are at risk of imminent risk of being homeless. And then where do they go is the, is the answer. We don't have enough transient type shelters for folks. Um, or transitional housing. We don't have enough of the housing stock that's affordable, that's in place. The span of time it takes to do, uh, to build, you know, quality uh, income housing under the low-income housing tax credit program, you know, could be two, three, four years, depending on uh, the project you're working on, the location, you know, the competition for that, that resource is, is, is pretty, pretty steep and competitive. Um, and so, yeah, all these factors working against us that we can't kind of run on the hamster wheel fast enough to work on the problem just because the need is so great. And can you just explain why it's so problematic if individuals are spending more than 30% of their income on housing, how that has a ripple effect? Mm -hmm. Sure. So if you're spending, you know, the lion's share of your, your income on housing, then you have to make a decision. You know, how do you pay for food? How do you pay for medical care? Um, if you're working and you have to have child care, how do you pay for that? Um, so it just ripples through, you know, the, the entire financial well-being of, of a household. Um, if they're, you know, just barely making the rent and they don't have resources left over for all the other necessities of life, um, then, you're just constantly at this battle to try to balance all of that. You know, how do you pay for housing? If I pay for my housing and my car breaks down, you know, and then I can't get to work because I don't have the money to fix the car, I lose my job. And it's just this cycle um, that really keeps people, um, you know, in, in this tenuous situation where they're, you know, you're, you can't get ahead because you're, you know, it takes you know, something that you or I might think of as a minor blip where your car breaks down or, you know, you have a child that gets sick and you have to spend a little more for a medical bill. Um, that takes away from, you know, how you handle the rest of your life. Well, you know, home ownership is a uh, 
wealth builder mm-hmm. and uh, probably for uh, African-Americans and people of color is probably the uh, most viable uh, investment vehicle uh, that, uh, that we use. But of course, if you can't uh, purchase your home, then you have to uh, rent. And uh, rental, uh, uh, the rental market is, uh, is, is dwindling. Uh, so Professor McCoy, can you kind of talk about uh, the, the problem uh, that has uh, existed for uh, renters? Uh, and you mentioned earlier Durham, Durham County, uh, which uh, at one point led the state uh, in, uh, in, 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 in eviction. So what did, what was the picture, what does the picture, what did the picture uh, look like uh, for uh, renters during this uh, pandemic when people were uh, out of work, could not uh, find, uh, did not have funds in order to pay uh, rent? What were they doing? Well, um, I hate to echo what Ms. Winston said, but I think it's very similar. Uh, what you see is people who are spending way more than 30% in order to provide housing for their family. And likewise, if you go to any eviction court on any given day, you're going to hear those same explanations. I lost my job. I had an unexpected medical illness. I had a transportation breakdown. None of those are legal defenses to the eviction action. So when someone is cash strapped, when someone is already paying over 30% of their income in housing, and one of those things, which for anyone else may seem like a minor setback or a temporary fix, when one of those things happen, it actually throws people into a catastrophe. If you add on to that, the fact that we haven't been investing in expanding affordable housing for people to be able to actually move in and live for years, we haven't done this for years, um, then what you notice is that there's a trend going on. And the trend is going to be that there are going to be fewer and fewer folks in the community who are going to be able to afford the housing. The reason why Durham was kind of insulated from that for so long is because we have so many people who are transplants into the area from other places that are accustomed to paying more or people who are coming here to go to one of the many wonderful institutions that are in our county. So when students come in from other places and they have financial aid that's going to support them, it really does hinder the people who are working here uh, from being able to access some of those resources that they ordinarily would have to rely on. And because those resources just aren't there, you still need a roof over your head. So if you need to pay more than 30% of your income in order to have a roof over your head, folks are going to do that. Well, you know, with with respect to renters, though, at the beginning of this uh, pandemic, uh, the government has allocated $47 billion. And we can't even count all the zeros that's associated uh, with, uh, with that. Uh, why hasn't that stemmed the problem as, ex- as it exists for uh, renters in Durham and in Raleigh and, and, and the surrounding area? So the first problem with the $47 billion valuation is this was a federal, um, a federal budgetary item that did not come into play until the end of January of this year. So the money was released basically to states or to local municipalities or agencies who are involved in providing rental assistance. But the money was released without any guidelines about how you were supposed to prepare yourself for the potential audit that may come in the future. 
So what happened is people were relying on the Department of Treasury to provide the guidelines before they disseminated the money. That didn't come out until the end of February. So after February, people ramped up to try to provide the assistance. And this is where you get kind of a cross section of different responses. So you have some places that the rules that they need as far as paperwork and things that they need to prove the need for rental assistance have become so cumbersome that normal everyday working people aren't able to navigate all of the red tape to get to the funds. You've got other places where people have done everything they're supposed to do and they've gotten award letters for the funds, but now the landlord is unwilling to accept the funds because the funds will tie into a period where the landlord is going to be inhibited from being able to evict. So the landlord is saying, if you owe me for seven months and I accept this money, which may be only for six months of coverage, and you don't pay me after this, I don't want to be bound in not being able to evict and move forward, even though I'm losing money. I'd rather go ahead and move forward with the eviction. That's why the moratorium was so important. The moratorium provided leverage for people because the landlords knew they could not evict while the moratorium was in play. So the option is either wait it out and see what happens with the moratorium and then evict or, you know, take the money, take something. Something is better than nothing. And just understand that you're taking it with the condition that you won't move forward with the eviction. The difference now, though, is the major moratorium ended on July the 31st. So what you saw across the nation was landlords lining up at the courthouse, filing evictions that they've been waiting to file for over a year. And now we've got this uh, new moratorium that came out last night. It is not retroactive. So it doesn't cover any of the evictions that have already occurred within that small window. Um, but it will cover some places, assuming that you're in a county that's experiencing substantial or high levels of community transmission of COVID. And that is more red tape. So now you need to have a map to determine whether or not you're in one of those counties to see if this is applicable for you. Um, we happen in Durham County, we happen to fall into one according to the map as of today. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of different issues that for the common working person who just wants to get the rental assistance and pay the rent, it can be incredibly confusing. Uh, on top of that, we are the fastest state in the nation when it comes to evictions. You can be evicted from your place in a matter of 24 days. So uh, there's not a lot of turnaround time for people who are dealing with the actual court process supporting the eviction. We could add so something that um, DHIC did um, to help our residents, because obviously we were impacted as well as other landlords, is obviously we um, allowed folks to enter into uh, rent deferral agreements. Um, so we deferred rent for six months, then worked out, you know, payment plans with folks. Um, and then also brought on case managers, to, a case manager to help us connect our residents with resources that became available in the community. Um, we're still working through, through that process um, as, as we speak. Um, in addition to that, we were able to um, raise from some, some uh, financial institutions and philanthropic organizations and other uh, businesses in the community, what we've called a re resident resilience fund. And we actually started this before the pandemic because we recognized um, that, you know, the 
emergency financial emergencies that could rise up to threaten people's ability to maintain their housing was happening. Um, and so that was to set up a fund where our residents living in our properties could apply for assistance uh, when they had like a, an issue that came up that might impact their ability to pay their rent in a particular month um, and access those funds to help so that they weren't at risk of losing their housings. Obviously, you know, we're as a, as a nonprofit, you know, we have a little more flexibility uh, to do those kinds of things and other landlords. Um, but that's something that we've been doing as an organization over the past year, year and a half, to year and a half to try and help you know, stem that tide and, and be um, a more compassionate landlord is probably the best way I know how to say it. Well, the ultimate beneficiaries of the uh, $47 billion are the uh, landlords, the uh, property owners, uh, because they are seeking uh, to get the rent. Uh, why aren't they more um, agreeable to working with uh, tenants to access these funds that ultimately will end up in their bank accounts and allow them to continue to uh, maintain and uh, uh, upkeep the uh, property that, uh, that they're renting out. And that's a great question. And we're gonna have both of you answer that when we come back from our break. You're listening to the Legal Eagle Review here on WNCU 90.7 FM. And we've been talking this hour about the housing crisis with Yolanda Winstead, who is the president and CEO of DHIC, and Jesse McCoy, the Scott, the James Scott Farron Lecturing Fellow and Supervising Attorney with the Civil Justice Clinic at Duke University Law School. We hope you we hope you'll stay with us. We'll be right back. Good evening. My name is Reginald Woods II. And I am a current 2L at the North Carolina Central University School of Law. And I would like to personally thank you for supporting and listening to the Legal Eagle Review, an informative and thought-provoking show that is made possible by the Virtual Justice Project of the North Carolina Central University School of Law, as well as listeners like yourself. For more information regarding the show or past episodes or the latest happenings surrounding our host, Please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Legal Eagle Review. Again, my name is Reginald Wist II, and thank you for listening. Okay, we're back on the uh, Legal Legal Review. Thank you for uh, staying with us. Uh, we uh, ended our last segment uh, raising the question about uh, cooperation from uh, landlords who are the ultimate beneficiaries of this uh, $47 billion uh, that the government has allocated for rental re relief. And uh, so let's... Uh, get responses uh, to that from uh, Ms. Winstead and then uh, Professor McCoy. So Ms. Winstead. Um, so I, I, could, I was on a call yesterday, actually. Um, the North Carolina Housing Coalition does a weekly uh, call with updates on um, issues that we do within the affordable housing industry. And 
um, the HOPE program, the Housing Opportunities um, and Prevention of Evictions program that um, is administering the funds that North Carolina received gave an update on um, what's been committed and allocated to date. And they've also um, added um, a feature to their system where landlords can now actually refer their tenants to the program. So if a landlord has a tenant that's um, that's delinquent on their rent, they can give that tenant's information um, to the HOPE program and they will reach out to the tenant to try to um, help them through the application process. But the statistics they shared yesterday included um, that they had received to date over 60,000 applications um, and they've committed um, $192 million. Um, and they've administered about 100 million, dispersed, I'm sorry, about 100 million in payments to date. Their processing time is now 14 to 18 days from application submission to payment. But they did indicate that they had a huge uptick in calls. And on Monday, August 2nd, they had 9,000 calls to their, to their line for assistance. Um, and so um, they're, you know, they're trying, they've obviously improved their process over when the program was first established um, and, and folks are becoming aware. Um, but I think we still, you know, it's still a challenge for a lot of people to find, you know, folks access to the Internet and their ability to, as uh, Mr. McCoy said, you know, get the documentation together. And so it's still going to be a long process, I think, to um, really get, a, get everybody into the system and, and get them assistance. Professor McCoy. Well, I think one of the main things is we have to understand that no one had an infrastructure, right? So even though we've known that we've had housing crisis and eviction crisis for all of this time, there has been no uh, demonstrated effort to provide infrastructure. So what we're all doing is essentially reinventing the wheel for our particular clientele. And that becomes problematic. I, I remember when the HOPE program first launched, one of the concerns was that there were municipalities that already had their own line of access to funds from other government entities. And the battle of who should serve this entity and, and all that created some backlog in and of itself. So I think part of this is understanding that there's a collective need for everyone to be focused on housing issues and focused on rental assistance. Um, I think that we have come light years from where we started when it comes to landlords being able to apply directly for uh, the loans, uh, when it comes to people having an understanding, like even now tenants being able to form their own applications online, um, that wasn't something that was happening in uh, 2020. So that's we've come a long way, but we also have those same challenges. Not everybody has internet in the home. Uh, not everybody is going to even know about these programs. I think often about people who are in rural counties, right? If you don't have a Duke Civil Justice Clinic advising you on these rental assistance programs, where do you go, right? So we, we don't have any kind of infrastructure statewide, and I would venture to say probably nationally as well, that will provide for this. And I hope that what we bring out of this is uh, some dedicated focus by lawmakers on trying to create some kind of statewide rental assistance fund that will always be operational and not just in a time of a pandemic. Um, lastly, I want to say that the pandemic has impacted everybody on both sides. So even though I'm very pro-tenant, I think that it's important that we understand that landlords do provide a very important function in our society and that we need to ensure that when they you know, sign a contract and they get involved in this, 
Uh, this is designed for them to make money that they need to make for their own overhead, their employees. Uh, and so if they cut people, if they cut employees and their employees can't work and can't afford their rent, that doesn't help either. Um, what we need is more government safeguard to prevent issues like this from happening. Because again, as I always say, COVID-19 didn't create these issues. It just exacerbated what was already there. And now because the issue has crept into middle income America, now there's more eyes on it. Now, both of you have um, absolutely wonderful organizations that are doing such great work. And um, Attorney McCoy, you you mentioned that, you know, there are people who don't have access to either of your organizations. They may not know about um, the HOPE Project. What advice would you give to listeners who are aware of, of folks who are having these challenges and they need access to resources? I think the best advice I can give you right now is to call 211. Uh, 211 provides a resource for what rental assistance options are available in addition to uh, other uh, inroads into other supportive resources. So people need to call and find out for their local area what is available. And then once you know that, it is a, a bit of uh, phone tag and trying to call the next agency and find out if you qualify. Some are more tech savvy than others uh, across the state. But I think it's important um, only because I don't foresee this issue getting better. Um, and the other concern that I have is we definitely don't want to be in a situation where we are evicting people who would otherwise qualify for the rental assistance. There's plenty of money, as you all have noted. Um, we just need to get money into the hands of the people who need it. And so the moratorium is not going to last forever. We thought it was over on July 31st. It, it's going to end at some point. And we just need to be in a position where people are able, ready, willing, and able to accept the rental assistance funds and not have to worry about the IRS or somebody coming to audit them uh, at a later point because we are in crisis mode. Ms. Winstead, do you have anything to add? Um, sure. So uh, definitely the 211 number. And then also um, Wake and Durham counties are among the count or, or among the 12 counties that got direct assistance and run their own hope program, their own housing programs. Um, and so I know the house wake dot com is the uh, website for Wake Counties. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know Durham's off the top of my head, but if you're in Wake or Durham County, the county runs its own. Speaking of no single infrastructure, have their own programs, uh, but the, those are options as well for folks in those counties to, to go to those counties' housing departments for assistance. What, what are the uh, short-range and long-term uh, solutions? Uh, to uh, to these problems, I know it. Uh, they have existed for a long time. Uh, how how do you see uh, our working our way out of this uh, crisis going forward? Uh, hopefully, the pandemic is going to end uh, soon, but the housing crisis probably will outlast the uh, pandemic. Uh, Ms. Winstead, you want to start us off with? Uh, how you see it from your perspective? I'm um, sure. I think the probably the first thing we need. Uh, we've been talking about you know the emergency rental assistance, um, but we really need um, a fully funded housing choice voucher program so that we have you know more rental assistance um, available to the broader community. 
And then with that, we need to continue to expand the supply of affordable housing. But we also need to address the fact that, you know, we have people with vouchers now who could not find a landlord that would, that would accept that voucher. Um, and so we really need to um, figure out a way to, you know, do away with the, the discrimination for folks, you know, using those vouchers to get housing in the broader marketplace. Um, because, you know, we have here in Wake County, the Raleigh Housing Authority has, you know, I don't know, two or three year wait list for the vouchers, but yet folks with the vouchers are out in the market and can't find the place that will take them. So um, I, I would say those are kind of the first few things that we need to tackle is the rental assistance um, and figuring out how to invest more dollars at both, you know, the state and federal level into getting a larger supply of affordable housing on the ground more quickly and making it a less complicated process. And, and whenever I look at it, specifically when I'm looking at evictions, I look at pre-issues and post-eviction issues. So pre-eviction, I think an increased stock of affordable housing is, is priority. Like we have to have that. Um, I also think that we have to have better opportunities that come and hire from people who live here, uh, as opposed to bringing folks from other places who live, who, who um, will work here and contribute to our economy. So in the jobs that are coming in, we've got Apple coming. Apple is talking about paying an average of $180,000. How many people from the Raleigh-Durham area are going to get those jobs, right? Are we training people to be prepared for those jobs? Um, on the post-eviction stage, what I look at is the impact and collateral consequences that that eviction judgment carries. So that eviction judgment is a mark of essentially financial shame that you won't be able to access certain financial instruments, you won't be able to access uh, alternative housing for a long period of time because of that eviction. So we know that at the end of this moratorium, there are still going to be people who have not gotten caught up in rental assistance funding, and they're going to be evicted. What inroads have we made to provide something sort of a, a civil expungement of an eviction judgment to clear it up so that people don't have these issues moving forward. Lastly, I think it is imperative, and I say this from my experience on different panels at all levels, national, state, local, it is imperative that you have people who understand the housing crisis as is making decisions in on Capitol Hill, making decisions on Jones Street, making decisions on Main Street. Like we need people who understand because the only issue that we see with this housing crisis is that it's repetitive. It's the same issue we've had for over 20 years and nobody has had the will to really put together an infrastructure or a package that will address it so that when things like a, a crisis or a pandemic come along, we already have something in place to offset what's going to happen. So I think those are things that I would want communities to start asking their people, their politicians, lawmakers, um, about what are your plans? How are you planning to address this? How are you planning to fix it? Uh, and I also believe, and I would, I know it's controversial, but I also believe sometimes systems work the way that the engineer designed them to work. So it doesn't make a difference what state you're in. If you go to eviction court, it is the same people who are being evicted and they look like us. That's the way it is. And there may be 
a pushback on trying to design more effective housing policy because the system is working the way that the engineers designed it to work. And it's important for people to know that so that you don't get yourself caught up in the system uh, just because you're trying to overextend yourself in income for a level that you may not necessarily be able to sustain. So Attorney McCoy, you've in, in talking about the problem, one of the, the refrains that, that you emphasize is, this is of no surprise, we saw this coming and, and there weren't actions that were taken to address the future that we knew was coming. And so my question to both you and Ms. Winstead as we kind of round out this hour is, why should um, those who, who may not be directly impacted or dealing with this housing crisis, why should, should the larger community be concerned? And kind of tied to that question is, what does the future look like if we don't address this problem? How does this um, crisis impact the future community as a whole, even if you're not dealing with the realities of this challenge right now? So I think the most direct impact for people who may not necessarily be in housing crisis right now is your property value, right? No place is going to have increased property value when you have an increasing number of people who are homeless. And what we're seeing is that the homelessness, the homeless population is going to increase because people simply aren't able to be able to sustain the rentals or you know, the living arrangements that they have currently. I think the other thing, and I know this is kind of like <laughs> controversial too, but I also feel like there's a degree of humanity. Like uh, Professor Joyner said earlier, we all know that housing is a basic fundamental need. Nobody disputes that. There are some countries who have taken to, to uh, hold up that mantle and provide housing that was going to be for everyone, right? So they provided a right to housing. We have made housing a business commodity. So because housing is a business commodity, if you don't have the capital to be involved in the business, then guess what? You don't get the commodity, right? And that creates a problem. That is how you know people shift politics. That is how people go out and ride in the streets eventually, because if too many people become homeless and they see folks who are living really good, uh, that's going to create some kind of discord. Um, moving forward, I think the issue that we have to deal with when it comes to the housing crisis is at some point we have to have bold leadership. It's probably not going to make you a lot of friends considering that even this Supreme Court overturn of the moratorium is based on actions filed by the uh, landlord lobby, right? So the landlord lobby has a lot of money. They have a lot of resources. They can influence politicians in ways that the average everyday tenant isn't able to do. And it's important to understand the role of money in politics, which is, I know, another conversation for a whole other day. But until there is some degree of parity in the positions of both parties, where it's supposed to be entering into, you know, bonding contracts as equal partners, until there is some parity in that, we're not going to see any change. Um, and I think that change comes from having diversified ownership of the capital in a given area. So I encourage clients, if you have the ability to secure a mortgage and to find a place that you can afford, it's much better to be a homeowner than to be a renter. Because even if they foreclose, it usually takes at least 60 to 90 days before that process gets going, as opposed to the 24 days for an eviction. 
On top of that, you know, we talked about the benefit of home ownership, the increased valuation. So when your property value goes up, you have an investment option. You have something that you can use to support kids going to college and maybe having other opportunities. Uh, you don't get any of that when you rent. When you rent, you're paying somebody else's mortgage. So it's important for people to understand where you are. That's not to not renting at all. It's certainly appropriate. And if people need to do it, you should certainly do it. But I just don't want people to feel like they're corralled into being perpetual renters forever, simply because the difference between renting and home ownership is just a matter of getting the information and moving forward. Wow. <laughs> um, I think I would just piggyback on that to say, um, you know, if you think about the health of, our, of us as humans in our country, I mean, it's easy, it's cheaper if you want to just talk about, we're talking about we've made housing, you know, a, a business proposition and an economic model. It's preventing a problem costs you less money than fixing a problem. And we're devoting all these resources now we're trying to devote to fixing a problem that we were able to prevent from happening. We could have done a lot more with that $47 billion to make lives better for our citizens than what we're doing now if we had addressed the problem in the past. And so I would say that, you know, it's a matter of how do we want to get the most use of our resources and, and have the most impact. And that is to set up a system and to create an environment where we can prevent folks from losing their housing. And we have safe housing and stable housing, and it does become a right that everyone has. And that safety net then allows us to, you know, grow our communities in other ways because we're not spending those resources on you know, homeless prevention services or, you know, trying to provide shelters and things of that nature when we could address the problem on the front end. So I think that would be where I would leave it. All right. Well, thank you both. Unfortunately, we're out of time. We could we could talk for hours on this and, and we need to make sure within our communities we spend some time really understanding what's going on. And, um, you know, as both of our guests have said, uh, we can predict what the future is going to hold if we don't tackle this problem correctly now. So we want to thank our guests for this incredibly vital discussion on the housing crisis. Yolanda Winstead, who is president and CEO of DHIC, and Jesse McCoy, the James Scott Farron lecturing fellow and supervising attorney for the Civil Justice Clinic at Duke University School of Law. And also, we'd like to thank you, our listening audience, for spending your Sunday evening with us. We hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have any questions or comments, please send us an email. You can reach us at LegalEagleReview at nccu.edu. And if you ever miss this show on Sunday, you can find the show on our Legal Eagle Review podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Until next week, stay informed, engaged, healthy, and safe.